This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Good morning, Emmaus. Our scripture reading today is Psalm 5. To the choirmaster for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I do pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Emmaus. Um, I just want to say that I really miss gathering with you all in person. And I'm going to try to make this as least awkward as an experience as possible, but I've never preached into a camera. So <laughs> this is new for me, um, although this isn't new for you getting to see people preach. Um, so um, yeah, I'm thankful for all of you who are on the other side of the camera this morning. Um, and so as we start right off the bat, I just want to start with prayer. Um, this psalm and the topic that we're covering today has been one that's actually uh, been pretty heavy in my heart, especially in the, in the recent weeks. Um, and so this is not an easy topic to cover. Um, and so I just want to right away uh, to invite the Spirit into our hearts this morning. So would you, would you pray with me? Abba, Father, we come to you this morning we, in a place of humility, God, we want to, to humble ourselves before you. God, we want to see your word as truth. And we are asking for you, by the revelation of your son, reveal it to us. God, as we face this topic of lament, I pray that you would uh, give us hearts that are open to this idea, to what it means to do this. And... Um, God, I just pray that you would, by your spirit, call us to, to not only see your word, but to live by it. So it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I feel like I can't go any further without acknowledging the fact that it feels a little cliche for a worship leader to be preaching a psalm. Um, I think growing up, and this might not be everyone's experience, uh, but growing up, uh, worship leaders preaching psalms is usually... Uh, the result of the pastor taking vacation and the elders saying, well, uh, there's like emotional stuff in there and singing and clanging of cymbals and playing of lyres and harps. So I feel like we should give the worship leader a song to preach. He, that's his like 
comfort ground, I guess. Um, and while Andy is on vacation, and I'm a worship leader preaching a psalm, which uh, to me feels a little ironic, I think that there is nothing cliche about the topic we're covering today. And while it honestly would be easier for me to be preaching to you on the importance of song, um, I'm not doing that today. And I'm not giving you an exegetical argument for why there should be drums in worship, <laughs> as uh, I'm sure a lot of us grew up with. Um, today, I am talking about lament. Uh, not exactly an easy topic. A lament specifically for injustice. Um, and as it's been said before in this series by others, the Psalms give us a language. They give us a language to encounter God. When we don't have words, the Psalms give us words. And so today we're seeking the Psalms, and specifically Psalm 5 from David, to give us words for lament. And as, and as we uh, continue this morning, I want to just uh, take a moment to define lament. And at least in my in my own words, the simplest way I can define it is to say that lament is a prayer that recognizes the brokenness of our fallen world and is a plea for God to fix it. Lament is a plea for mercy, not just on our own individual level, but a corporate, all of creation level. And I think it's often easy for us as the church to embrace uh, the idea of redemption and the idea of the blessings of God but in doing so, we have forgotten that we live in an already but not yet reality of restoration. And that is where lament lives. Mike Cosper puts the practice of lament this way in his book, Rhythms of Grace. He says, what the church needs isn't empty promises of success in exchange for faith and tithing, but a gospel message that assures us that suffering is purposeful and that we have a God who is present in our suffering. This morning we're jumping into lament. The idea that we, we understand the promises of God, we know what they are, but sometimes we need words and we need a language to remind us to ask God to remain faithful to his promises because that's what we need in times of injustice. So the Psalm is a lament from David on the injustice he's facing, but we know that it equally applies to what we're facing today. And one distinction I want to make about lament, uh, because I, I think a lot of times we understand lament as complaining. And uh, one reason we, that we know the lament isn't complaining is because lament is about confidence. It's about approaching God in confidence of his character. And the, uh, the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus says this in Luke 18. He says, will not God give us justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? My argument for the psalm today is that David shows us the lament is not about complaining, it's about pleading to God with confidence. When the Son of Man comes to earth, will he find faith? Will he encounter a church that comes to him in faith and confidence in his promises, not in complaining? 
It would do us no good to ask God for anything we didn't think he could do. We need persistent faith in who God is to rely on his justice. And I think when we face these issues of injustice, we find ourselves overwhelmed and feeling like there's no way to fix the level of brokenness around us. But that's why we lament. I think David shows us here that there are three characteristics about God that can give us this confidence, the right way of faith to approach him and bringing our lament. So we're gonna see that God reminds us, or God, David reminds us that God is holy, that God is loving, and that God is overall just. So let's jump into the psalm. David starts right off the bat with a plea for God to hear him. Verse one, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. The word groaning that David uses here is a word from the Hebrew language used to express the feeling of not being able to express emotion with words. It's a gut feeling. This is how we know that this is a psalm of lament. When we face things like injustice, we often have a hard time finding the words to express how it makes us feel. This is where David is at. He's bringing his suffering that has afflicted him to God with his words and even the things that he can't express. From this place of asking for God's attention, he relays to him why he believes and why David is confident that God will hear this groaning of his heart. So let's look at this first claim about God's holiness. David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. That is some pretty strong language uh, and some pretty bold claims to make of God. He's saying that he doesn't delight in our wickedness. He hates evildoers. He destroys liars. But the phrase I want us to pay special attention to is when David says that evil may not dwell with God. When we approach the topic of God's holiness, a lot of time we approach it from his goodness. We see God as good and set apart. And yes, those things are true, and those are a piece to what make God holy. It doesn't paint the whole picture, because what we aren't asking is what makes him good? What sets God apart from us? We know those things cognitively, but we don't always grasp them tangibly. When we talk about God's holiness, we forget to mention our sin. James Johnson puts it this way in his commentary on Psalm 5. He says, God is holy because he infinitely loves everything that is good and beautiful and true. God hates sin precisely because he is a loving God. His love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin. The purity of God's unbounded delight and goodness and his perfect hatred for evil is what makes God holy, set apart from every other being in the universe. So it isn't just that God is good, it's that he literally cannot tolerate what is not. Evil cannot 
be in his presence. David knows that God is holy because he knows that there is no higher standard of good. The author of good is who decides what is good. This poses a problem for us as we seek to mend injustice, as we ask for God to pay attention to our injustice. Because for David to make this list of qualities that God opposes means that there are people to represent them. And when we take a look at what scripture would say about us, we realize that we might be biting off more than we can chew when we ask for God to be just. Romans 3.23 is a great example. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we have all sinned, then are we not in the boat with the people in this list that David has made? According to God, we are. And this is where the problem lies. Even though we have fallen short of the glory of God, and the justice we ask for is actually made to be poured out on us because of our sin, we try to convince ourselves that we are not in the crosshairs of God's wrath, only in his love. So imagine with me, if you would, say we're in a courtroom and we're uh, in the audience viewing a trial for murder and the defendant uh, hears all the evidence laid against them and uh, in a split second, he jumps up from his table where he's sitting and he runs over to the jury. He says, hey guys, hold on, look. Okay, I get it. My fingerprints were on the murder weapon and yes, the murder weapon was registered to me. And uh, yeah, I don't actually have an alibi for that night. Um, but okay, yeah, I did it. You know, yes, I did it. But I'm a good person, right? I mean, uh, yes, I killed those people. But, um, you know, overall, I'm a pretty good guy. Like, I pay my taxes. And, you know, like, I, I volunteer. Uh, I... You know, I don't cut people off in traffic most of the time. Um, yeah, I would say like overall I'm a pretty good person. I mean, those people are dead, so I did do that. But overall, I'd say like when you stack the cards, there's like more in my favor, right? And he jumps over to the judge and knocks him out of the chair and, and bangs his gavel and says, you know what? I was guilty, but I declare myself innocent because I'm a good person. Obviously, that was a ridiculous scenario. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure if any of us were in that room, we would be tweeting it immediately and be like, what the heck's going on? And he probably, hopefully, <laughs> would be going to jail. Um, but as crazy as that sounds, that is exactly what we do. We are an undeniably guilty party trying to replace the judge and the jury to create our own verdicts. We may not be able to face our sin. We may even ignore it, but a holy God simply can't. He is holy because what is good is the only thing that can coexist with him. So on that final day when we will see things made right, we can count on God to destroy the liars, destroy the bloodthirsty and those who live a life patterned after sin. And that includes us. So if David has fallen short like we have, then where is his confidence coming from? How is he approaching God seemingly condemning himself. Look at how David sees his relationship with God. This is what he says. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, 
will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. David is making a separation between him and the wicked. He's confident in the contrast that he has to the others. God actually delights in him. Where the wicked cannot even be in God's presence, David is entering his house. He sees God as holy, but he also sees him as loving. The word for steadfast love here is a Hebrew word called hesed. This is the word for God's covenantal love, his committed relationship with the people of Israel. In essence, it is God's mercy. See, David believes he is in a covenantal relationship with God and not only gives him access to mercy, but the very righteousness of God himself or what God sees as his standard for good, what is right. So the question we have to ask is how can we have God look at us the way that he looks at David? How do we have the confidence that David has in God's character. Let's take a stroll down memory lane to Titus in the series we covered just before this. Titus 3, 4 through 6. Here's what Paul says. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of our goodness, but according to his own mercy. His chesed. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We cannot muster our own righteousness, or like Andy says, we can't white-knuckle it. As hard as we want to try, as many good works as we do, we will sin. And when we have sinned, we simply have fallen short of God's holy standard for what is good. But there is one who did the impossible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, coming down to us to live like us, to share in our suffering, to be tempted and found with no fault, to live a righteous life, a life of doing good and doing only what is right in God's eyes. And then he ransomed himself for us on the cross, earning the destruction that comes with sin that we deserve, fulfilling the covenant. And when he rose, he rose to life, forever having left our death and our sin in the grave. So now, those who, like David, have faith, we're not met by God's wrath. We're confident to be met by God's love. That is the wind in our sails when we come to God with lament. Romans 3 says that we have fallen short, but it also says this, that you are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as an appropriation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
We no longer have to make our own righteousness because we've been justified by faith in Christ. When God looks at us to judge our goodness, to re- for himself to remain holy, he sees the perfect life of Christ that we now share with him. And he finds us righteous because Jesus is righteous. We too now have a straight path to follow in the footsteps of Christ. We've been given a right way of living by the example of the life of Jesus. So now we start to understand this confidence that David has. We're able to lament in faith because we have a holy savior who's made us right with God and only has good intended for us. So now that we see, we see these scenes, we see that David isn't quite done yet <laughs> with those lists of people. Here he sets a guilty verdict and this is what he's asking God to recognize in these people that have made him to suffer. And the safety of God's love and the cover of his righteousness, he says this, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, God. Let them fall by their counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David again is making a contrast. The while he was in sin, he has come to God in faith and now is secure and shares in the righteousness of God. But for those who have not, that still oppress him and don't turn to God in faith, this is their character in contrast to him and contrast to God's. This verse stands as a statement of God's justice on those who do not, who continue, sorry, to rebel in him. But I think it's also a statement of warning for us. We are quick to judge the irreligious and those outside of Christ that do us wrong. And we do it so fast, we don't realize that it might be us with the throats like open graves. That it might still be us who only flatter God with our works and our words, but have no faith or obedience to let God be the judge and the jury. We forget and our self-righteousness tries to lead the way and it will always fall flat. It will always fall short. Can I give you an encouragement? God is just, and if we have faith in his justice, we can hold firm to the work of Christ and what he has done. Our lament can have meaning. So be encouraged that the spirit is renewing you in abundance because of the work of Christ. When before our lament could be interpreted as self-righteous whining, you can approach the throne in the cover of grace, confident that your words reach a suffering servant. David reminds us what it looks like to embrace this reality and to be faithful to the love that God has given us. So in contrast to those who rebel, who continue to turn from God, this is what David says. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover with a favor as with a shield. The proper ending to our lament is not to continue to despair, it's to move forward in rejoicing. If 
we lament in sorrow to a God who is holy, to a God who is loving and just, we can rejoice knowing that he will be just. And we could stop here. Um, this would be a great end to a sermon and leave us with a great happy feeling. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to do that because there's a nuance to this psalm that I could not ignore. And so I have to speak. So we remember back to our series in Matthew and um, the many, many weeks that we covered on the Sermon on the Mount. We started with the Beatitudes. And one of those Beatitudes in particular says that, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We long to see right done and to do right. If we know that God one day will make it so, that he will satisfy that longing. But he also tells us when you actually live in righteousness, that you will be persecuted. And it's only then that the kingdom will be yours. So you're not just satisfied simply by your thirst and your hunger. It's when you've tasted the water on your lips and have been refreshed from the consumption of a meal that you become satisfied. We want to see justice done for us but we don't want any opposition. We want to be right without the world seeing us as wrong. We can shout and we can give God praise. We can ever sing for joy. But what you see here on a Sunday in your small groups, it's not the extent of our worship. It's the stepping off point. What if the pinnacle of our gathering wasn't the singing, it was the sending? What if we didn't just stop at the call of worship and acknowledge our need for Christ, but we took that need for Christ and we followed it through to doing the work of Christ? Lament has to end in living. We can't just stay in lament. When we do that, we are not giving God the full extent of our worship. And that's clearly seen in Isaiah 58. When Israel cries out to God and says, we're fasting, we're doing these things and we aren't seeing you. Why? This is God's response. Is this not the fast that I chose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? We are more like Israel than we care to admit. We are more like the priest and the Levite than we are the Samaritan. We cry out to God to heal our injustice while we ignore the injustice of, injustice of others around us. So tell me, is God pleased with our worship when George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain and so many countless others have lost their lives? And when an entire people group cries out, our lives matter, the church's response is, all lives matter. Tell me, 
Are we prophets when we speak out against abortion? But lives outside the womb are little more to garbage than us, gone unnoticed on the corners of our streets. Tell me, is the beauty of the gospel transforming the city when we ignore the poor and the hungry and the desperate and the homeless and the stranger? because we are content with the people already in our lives. Our worship and our lament mean little to God if we are not doing the work of God, if we squander our inheritance. How can we ask for our wrongs to be righted when we minimize and ignore the wrongs and the pleas of others that they're experiencing. If our gospel communities in Emmaus closed its door today, would our neighborhoods miss us? We are called to be a people who lament, to see the wrongs of this world and weep with those who weep, but then you're supposed to go into the dark places with God having gone before us to bring the light of the gospel to heal up, to break the bonds of wickedness, to see the things that have been made wrong right again. That is our inheritance. That is why we lament. We don't lament to complain. We lament to ask God to be faithful to his promises and to call us to something greater than ourselves. If God's justice was just about punishing wrong, then why bother with the cross? Why send his only son to endure the greatest injustice ever committed? God's justice is not just about punishing wrong. It's about making things right again. It's the ministry of reconciliation. That is justice. That is our inheritance, Emmaus. And I, I don't want to minimize the good work that our church does because I, many, more times than can count, have been a recipient of it. My family has been blessed beyond my imagination by this church, and I know that all of you have stories like that. But we have work to do. And it's not enough to serve each other and serve ourselves. We need to go out into the world and serve those around us. When God says, what you've done for the least of these, you've done for me, what is our answer? What are we doing for the least of these? When we do that, we enact true justice. This is what happens. The continuation of Isaiah 58, he says this. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually 
and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. Church, can we lament today in confidence that we need a just God to remain just, not just for ourselves, but for the world around us. Until God can look at his creation and again say, it is good, there is work to be done. Until Christ returns, that is the work of the church. And if we aren't doing that, then God have mercy. We are not a church. We are a Christian club. So can we hold firm to the grace that we have found in Christ? Can we remember our calling? Can we lament and faith and rest in the promises of God that he will do justice and that his plan for justice on this earth is his church. Let's go to confidence approaching the throne of our holy and loving and just king that he will not let injustice have the final word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that your word gives us language for lament. Jesus, that we can, we can come to you with even our greatest emotions that we can't even express with words. Jesus, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for the work that you accomplished that we could not. Jesus, I pray that we would be spurred on, that our worship wouldn't just be empty, that it wouldn't just be words, but that it would be followed by the work of your kingdom. Jesus, the one we, we sing, we sing to remember, and then we respond. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being holy. God, would you remain just? It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen.